are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Welcome to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Today, the topic we are discussing is representing a client with dementia. With me is Tipa Snow. So Tipa is one of the world's leading advocates and educators for anyone living with dementia. Tipa's philosophy is reflective of her education, work, experience, medical research, and firsthand caregiving experiences. Her advocacy efforts led her to the development of the GEMS Dementia Classification Model and the Positive Approach to Care Training Strategies. Her company, Positive Approach LLC, was founded in 2006 and offers a person-centered training opportunity in the United States, Canada, Australia, and the UK. So she is a busy woman traveling around teaching everyone um, about dementia and, and the impact of that. So Tipa, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Rebecca. It's great to be here. So I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, as elder law attorneys, we are interacting with individuals on a daily basis that maybe have a dementia diagnosis, or sometimes their families are just beginning to notice certain signs that's making them suspect maybe there's something going on. Um, But before we delve into that discussion of all of those particulars of representing a client that may have dementia, I think it would be helpful if you could give our listeners just a little background on your organization and your positive approach to care. Yeah, so background, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, I went to Duke, I went to UNC. I work with the I worked for a good bit of time with the Alzheimer's Association in North Carolina, taught at the medical school, taught at the nursing school, and found myself frequently being asked to work with those trying to represent individuals living with dementia in both class action lawsuits, but also in individual situations, because what we're finding is this group is highly vulnerable to issues with figuring out how to live life uh, and having people make choices or decisions with them or through them or about them. And we don't have as much structure around this condition as we often do among other health conditions. So um, even though my primary focus is for families, healthcare providers, the general public, we have developed some special resources for people in the legal professions because you are certainly being called up and called in when issues come up and trying to prepare people and realizing that there's a big gap between what the healthcare system might understand and know about dementia and what the legal system might understand or know about them. Now, when we say dementia or a family member tells us their loved one has dementia or has gotten that diagnosis, can you break that down for us a little bit? What that word dementia, what does that actually mean? What are the different types yeah. of dementia? 
Yeah, so this is really tricky. So if you ask 100 individuals, what is dementia, they'll say, well, it's like Alzheimer's. And if you say, well, what's Alzheimer's? Well, it's memory problems. And so people typically have in their head that it's this one thing and it's memory. And the reality is dementia is a great big umbrella term that now covers what we would say approximately 120 forms, causes and types. And although Alzheimer's is certainly a player and it's a big player, it is not what we thought at one time where we thought that 80 to 90 percent of all dementias were Alzheimer's. We we now appreciate that that's not true. When we say someone has dementia, there are four things that if it's an accurate identification of what's going on, which means they got a good evaluation, which classically at this moment in type happens only in about 20% of all situations. Let me say 20% again. Um, What that means is at least two parts of their brain are actively dying at a rate and at a level where they can't live their lives as they previously lived their lives because of the changes that are happening in their brain in at least two areas, it means that what they have is progressive. It's going to progress. It's going to get more more involved. It's going to spread in the brain. Third, it means they have a condition that isn't reversible as we are currently able to reverse or stop or halt or prevent the disease. There are dementias that we can reduce risk on, that we could maybe delay symptom progression, but we can't change the disease right now. And the fourth thing that's true is they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. So those are four things that are true about everything under the umbrella of dementia. Beyond that, we know that all of them involve some element of hippocampal change. And the hippocampus is where memory is located. But what's involved varies by dementia. So we can talk more about that one, but that's the general meaning of the word dementia. The problem is that's not what most people think. They think it's just memory and it's not going to be just memory. What are some of the major issues, you know, as an elder law community where we're interacting with these individuals, what are some major issues that we should be familiar with, aware of as it relates to people that are living with dementia? Well, number one, did they get a good workup? (laughs) Because if not, that's a big question. And is it for sure dementia or could they have depression and anxiety and a history of a mental health issue um, that's as they're aging being identified as a dementia? But in fact, it's a mental health issue that's not well managed or Could it be that on top of their mental health issue, they are starting to have episodes that are consistent with dementia and nobody's picked up on the idea that this isn't their mental health issue. They don't need another stay in an acute care psychiatric setting. They actually need somebody to recognize they're developing dementia and they need a different program, a different support structure. Or could it be that we have family members who are seeking to, as much as we might like not to talk about it, take advantage of or offer support to? So often elder law attorneys are called in when one set of individuals believe that another set of individuals are trying to do something they shouldn't, or when the person themselves is unaware of their symptoms or might be aware, but there's another opinion going on there. 
or there's a lot of financial resources and people are getting concerned about what I'm doing. So really figuring out whether what I've got is a dementia or a dementia plus another condition, or I have a health condition like maybe Down syndrome, which is high risk for developing dementia. So maybe I should come up with a trust plan and a future plan um, and that could be something, or maybe as a parent, my child has a condition because that also can happen. Um, so overall, there are huge situations where elder law attorneys are being asked to take a role and to do it and do it well, um, I think is going to take some additional training. Like is the type of dementia you're looking at vascular, Lewy body, frontal temporal, Alzheimer's, uh, posterior cortical atrophy, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, because each one of those has different symptom profiles. So it would, it would cause us to want to design a care program, um, a plan outward, a life plan, uh, a caring plan that's going to take into account probable progression pattern and how we might want to be supporting that individual. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we know? So you mentioned make sure they have a good workup. Make sure they have, you know, how do, how do we know as attorneys whether they did receive the proper evaluation and proper testing? So there are a couple of things you can look for. Um, did they see anyone other than their general practitioner? And during that special evaluation, did they get seen by a neuropsychologist or did they get seen by a neurologist that actually completed more than what is called the Folstein or the mini mental? And just to give you a sense of what that is, because you might see that in a report, it's, it's called the mini mental or the Folstein. And it sounds something like this. What's the day? What's the date? What's the day of the week? What's the month? What's the season? What's the year? What's the name of this place? What floor are we on? What city? What county? What state? I'm going to ask you to remember three words. I'm going to give you those three words. Don't forget the three words. I'm going to try to trick you. Ball flag 22. What were the three words I gave you? Okay. Now have a hundred takeaway seven, takeaway seven, takeaway seven, takeaway seven, takeaway seven, takeaway seven. If you can't do that, could you spell the word world backwards? Okay. So now say this, no ifs, ands, or buts. All right. I'm going to show you two a picture with two intersecting pentagons. I want you to draw it. Take this piece of paper, fold it in half, and put it on the floor. Uh, what were the three words I asked you to remember? So, <laughs> so that's called the mini mental. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, that was at one point considered sort of what we should do to find out if somebody had dementia. And mm-hmm. it turns out that it's actually a very poor indicator that someone might or might not have dementia. People who are quite bright are able to pass that test and live with dementia, but not be able to make good choices and decisions on a day-to-day basis necessarily on safety measures, on financial measures, on life choices, on relationships, um, on legal, illegal. I mean, they can't do those things anymore, but they can still pass that test. Whereas people who are not particularly uh, educationally in a good place, they're, they're not bright. I mean, they're just not really smart people. They'll fail that test from the beginning. I mean, it's not something they could have done before they got dementia. So if that's the evaluation that's being used, um, we need to ask the question, wow, is that all that was done? Uh, I think we need more screening. 
I think we need to see the person in a situation where they're operating. We want to know how they're doing running their life. And so there are things called the AD8, which is an eight question. Have you noticed change or do you think it's the same? Um, There are things called the slums or the sage, which actually are more tuned in to the details There's something as simple as an animal fluency, where I ask you to name as many animals as you can in a minute. And then we look at that at one moment in time, and then we go forward and we look at it again. And we're trying to evaluate, are you changing? Hmm. Because we shouldn't see change unless something's changing in you. And so we're really starting to get curious about how well people are being evaluated, because that actually has impact on the rest of their life. Right, right. Now, you also mentioned, so we talked about making sure they have the good workup, but you also mentioned what, you know, figuring out what type of dementia they have. That's going to be, you know, very, very differently on what kind of plan we may write up for them. So can you talk to that a little bit? What are the different, so you mentioned some of the different types of dementia, but what are the differences or the impact that that might have on us as an elder law attorney? Yeah, so um, let's let's do the highlights. So we have Alzheimer's, obviously, we have vascular dementia, we have Lewy body disease, and then we have frontal temporal lobe dementias. Those are four big categories of dementia. Now, the thing about vascular is it's the least predictable. Um, so it means you have a blood supply to your brain problem, and it could be due to hypertension, diabetes, having had a stroke, um, having heart disease, having uh, atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Um, it could be due to COPD. It could be due to a number of health conditions. But what it means is your brain has dead areas. Your brain has areas that the flow of blood and oxygen don't go regularly. And if that's the case, then it's highly variable. So it's also the one that people could live just maybe three months or they could live 30 years. So trying to design a care plan for primarily vascular dementia, ooh, um, and realizing that with vascular, I'll have episodes where I'm fine. And then I'll have episodes where it's like living with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, where I can have an emotional meltdown or I could be really flat. Alzheimer's disease is very different. Um, It primarily, the first signs of it will be changes in the ability to hold on to new information, new details, not emotions. I may not trust you or like you, but I don't know why I don't trust you or like you. And my brain makes up a story to understand it, which is you stole money. Um, You're cheating and you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. And if I like you, I like you, but I don't know why I like you. So I'm letting you come in my house and manage my money because you're really nice to me. Um, And so that makes me vulnerable. But the other side of Alzheimer's will be that I'm having some difficulty keeping up with everything that's going on around me. I'm having difficulty with keeping up with how I got from place to place and how I get back. So I might get lost. Um, I might also be having trouble with being able to keep up with how much time has gone by since I um, talked to my lawyer, since I ate lunch, since I did things. And so I may be overeating, undereating. I may be um, dealing with my distress by doing things I shouldn't be doing. Um, And so 
it's a little different. Lewy body has a hallmark of, uh, it's often been thought of a Parkinson's plus Alzheimer's and it isn't. It's more common than we thought. It often involves hallucinations, visual hallucinations, seeing things that aren't there, sleep disturbances, um, problems with delusional thinking. And this one's a little more extreme where I think people have stolen things and people are coming in at night and, and, and that my wife is cheating on me. And and so I become very paranoid. I become, and so this is one that will often result in a psychiatric situation. And there's, it's, it's not going to be treated with a psych. And the meds often for 50% of people who have this condition, medications are very dangerous for them. Um, it actually kills people and it diminishes capacity and it makes them unable to move. Um, so it's really risky business. And unfortunately, we still have a medical profession that isn't tuned into that and legal systems that are unfamiliar with it. <clears throat> and the last group being the frontal temporal dementia, that's a family of We could go anywhere from somebody who has a blunted flat affect to somebody who is very physically and emotionally very impulsive and they're impulsive spending money and they're impulsive socially and sexually and they're impulsive driving really fast and so they're going to end up in a lot of trouble with legal situations <laughs> and, and then on the other hand we may have we we, we might um they're a very a very very um uh, and a very different kind of frontal temporal is a person who used to use language for a living and now um, they can't get words out. They can't get words in, they can't use language and it's devastating. And so that's a primary progressive aphasia. Mm -hmm. So when I describe those, Rebecca, you can get the idea that, wow, knowing who and what you're dealing with, the bad news is people can have more than one at once and you can get one and then get a second one. Mm -hmm. But if you don't even know what you got, that you're looking at as a lawyer, you don't know whether you're talking about somebody who's in a later state of a disease or somebody who's in the beginning state of a certain type of dementia and still has a lot of capacity hidden away behind a lack of knowledge of language. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we, so you mentioned training and that elder law attorneys yeah. need to be trained on these various types of dementias and, and knowing the symptoms. What kind of training do you recommend? <laughs> Well, one of the things I think starting off is just what's the difference between normal and not normal aging? And what are some signals and signs of the different dementias? Because if I'm going to be effective as a lawyer, I want to start to recognize, ooh, uh, that's not normal. I don't, it doesn't sound like depression, though. It sounds like a kind of dementia. Um, So tell me a little bit more about where you're from. And I want to make sure I'm asking some questions that I can verify or validate the answers elsewhere mm-hmm. so that I know whether or not the person's history is accurate, but what we, so, and then I say, so tell me a little bit about what you remember we talked about earlier in the conversation, because I want us to go back. Tell me the three things we talked about early when we first started this conversation. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to be testing is your immediate recall, your ability mm-hmm. to, instead of three words though, I'm going and saying, do you recall what we talked about or can I trick you um, and take advantage of you? And this is where I think we have a responsibility as those who want to support and do best by people living with dementia. 
we absolutely have a responsibility to get better at noticing and then figuring out, okay, so who around them is the best representative for them? Not who wants to do it, but who would best represent them if they were not able to represent themselves. Right. Now, you also mentioned, which I find really interesting, this interplay of the mental health, you know, the depression, anxiety. So how, what are some little signs of of knowing the difference between maybe an underlying mental health issue and dementia? So one of the realities is people who live with dementia, about 50% will have anxiety and or depression. Half of everybody who gets dementia gets clinical depression. Half of everybody who gets dementia gets clinical anxiety disorder. But we also know people with clinical anxiety disorder, depression, bipolar disease, many other mental health conditions are 50% more likely than their peers to start developing a dementia at a younger age. So what we want to notice is what's their baseline? So what have we picked up on their cognitive status is regard to emotional state, regard to orientation, regard to arousal and alertness. Um, Is this a cycling they've always had or is this something new and different? Is it a worsening of what we've seen before? Does it seem out of control? Because we also want to be on the lookout for a delirium which is an acute medical condition or acute psychological condition on top of the chronic condition. So with mental health, we should be able to stabilize people. With dementia, you'll never be able to stabilize someone because it's a progressive illness. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for shifts and variation that aren't explained by history and by what is routine. And we need to quit messing with medication adjustments or psychiatric admissions when what we know is we're not looking at that anymore. We're looking at a multiplayer here. Right. Do you find that in the medical profession that they're now picking up on these differences, you know, in an emergency room setting or in a nursing home setting? Do you hear my sigh? (laughs) I wish. I wish. We probably have about 10 to 20% of the medical community tuned into dementia and these complications, the reality is it's complicated. And just as in law, there's lots of things going on. In healthcare, there's so many things going on. Dementia is a back burner. People know that there's not been a cure, so they still think nothing's changed. And that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. Now, have there been any kind of recent changes or recent findings in dementia that would really make a difference in our elder law practices? Yes. And I'm wondering whether we may want to dig into that a little bit more if we get another chance. Definitely. Sure. Um, And just, Tipa, kind of to wrap up this episode and then um, our listeners can tune in to our next podcast where we'll delve into some more of these topics. If any of our listeners want to hear you speak again, you know, find your schedule or tap into your website, contact you, what is a way that they can reach you? Yeah, the simplest thing is either info at tipasnow.com, which is an email, or our website, which is tipasnow.com. And there we have all kinds of free stuff on there and things that are available for more intense learning if people are up for it. 
great. Well, thank you all so much for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on iTunes and find all of our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks.